Two and a Half Admins, episode 151. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your Clara plug for this time, Alan, is FreeBSD and Linux Firewalls, part one. Yeah, so if you are using one of the operating systems and interested in the other, this provides a bit of a Rosetta Stone between the two firewalls and lets you learn how to do the same thing on both systems. So you can take knowledge that you have of how to do it on one and apply it to the other. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Jim, you recently set up Practical ZFS as a lifeboat away from Reddit. And so I thought you should tell us about exactly how you did that. Well, when it became clear that we needed a lifeboat, I knew that I wanted to find something that was relatively close to Reddit's interface because the the Reddit format of upvoted and downvoted threaded discussions with the uh, most popular post bubbling up to the top is pretty much perfect for, you know, technical Q&A, which is the majority of what RZFS is. And then beyond that, I also knew that I didn't want to half-ass it, to put it frankly. RZFS had 27,000 subscribers and then some. Now, usually no more than 100 or 150 of them are online at any given time, but, you know, that's still a fairly substantial amount of load. And what I did not want to do was provide a supposed lifeboat that then just immediately collapsed underneath the folks who tried to use it. We've had enough Titanic in the news lately, and I did not want to add yet another Titanic news bite. So that meant that uh, I was not going to do the usual approach of, you know, grab a $5 or a $20 VM at, you know, some cheap VM host and go from there. I wanted to treat, you know, this, this lifeboat, this new website, the same way that I treat my customers' application stacks and the same way that I treat my own with a proper KVM virtualized virtual machine running on top of ZFS with automated snapshotting and replication, both on quote premises, meaning within the same cloud and, you know, off premises for maximum disaster recoverability. And then knowing all that, I had to figure out what the actual platform was going to be. Now, the last piece of that puzzle is since I knew that I didn't want to half-ass it with just a cheap VM, that also meant there was going to be a noticeable server bill that I was going to have to, you know, foot out of pocket, at least for a while. But unlike most of my ventures where I don't start thinking about monetization until well after the fact and it starts feeling weird and awkward and forced... I didn't want to force anybody to pay money to access the site ever, but I did want from the very beginning to have a way for those who were inclined to financially support it to be able to help me out with the server bill. And so that meant I needed a Patreon integration. So now I knew that I wanted bubble-style voting if possible. I wanted direct Patreon integration because if you really want people to actually do Patreon support, you got to give them some kind of fun little benefit. Even if they never use it, just offer it, you know, whether it's flair, you know, on your username when you post on a forum or whether it's, you know, one t-shirt a year or whatever, you offer something. It, It gets people interested and excited and more likely to actually do what they really wanted to do in the first place, which usually is actually support you, but that little nudge helps, right? Yeah, like the ad-free feed that we have, for example. Exactly. And, you know, that is an excellent example. I have been a late-night Linux Patreon for years now. I still am, and I have yet ever to use the ad-free feed. It's nice that it's there, but the ultimate reason for me, really, is that I wanted to support the show. I love the podcast. So that was the goal here, and that got me started looking around the first thing that I looked at was there are a couple of you know new Fediverse type Reddit clones, uh, Kbin and Lemmy, both of which operate in the same Fediverse. 
But the more that I looked into them, the more neither looked quite ready or right for what I wanted to do. There really wasn't much in the way of an extensible infrastructure to do something like, you know, build in easy support for, you know, Patreon folks. Because the other side of that is I I didn't want to get stuck with like, I need to manually make something happen every time somebody clicks to support. I wanted to be able to just automatically give them the flair or the badge or the extra privileges or, you know, whatever in return. So the next concern was security. This is not my first rodeo managing a forum or a, a publicly accessible wiki. And the spam problems have just always been absolutely immense for those. And the security issues also tend to be immense because there's a lot of attack surface there. So I wanted something that would offer me extensibility via plugins, specifically a Patreon plugin. I wanted bubble voting. I wanted free and open source, obviously, because who am I? What do I do? Am I not known for putting my money where my mouth is? And I wanted something that was widely supported and deployed. And once I put all those things together, discourse was frankly the only thing left. That was the only way I could get every single one of the items on my bullet point list. Discourse, for those of you who are not familiar, it's not discord, it's discourse. Discourse is a modern take on form software that was co-founded by Jeff Atwood, who is famous for having also co-founded Stack Exchange. And the bubble voting plugin that it has, it's actually not exactly what I wanted. I really wanted exactly Reddit-style threaded and voted and sorted conversations, whereas the plugin for Discourse is actually Stack Exchange-style. If you've ever used a Stack Exchange site, you know exactly what the votable threads look like on Discourse. Their supported installation It's not an old school sysadmin, you know, get down in the weeds and set up your own web server and set up like the entire stack and integrate all the pieces manually. The supported simple install runs as a single container beneath Docker. The actual infrastructure of the site is Ruby on Rails. It's got built-in Redis caching and PostgreSQL database. And when you deploy the container, All this stuff is pretty much just already integrated and all works. And you basically just kind of have to do your Docker necessities to get it running and then log in and bash through it and you're done. I've never heard Redis said as Redis before, I must say. I very rarely hear it said at all. And the few times that I have, I've usually heard it said Redis, but I am not going to try to tell you I know for sure the, I don't know if canonical is the appropriate word here, but the right way to pronounce it. So what did you do about supporting external authentication? Well, that's another one of the things that uh, luckily there are plugins for. In fact, the way the Patreon integration works with the the plugin for Discourse is by OAuth2. In order to get the Patreon integration with your account, so you automatically get, you know, whatever flair and access to the supporters lounge, all that kind of stuff, you need to tie your login there to your login at Patreon using OAuth2. And when you do that, you actually can log into the site directly with OAuth2 from Patreon. So you don't technically need to create a local account at all. That can happen automatically via Patreon's OAuth2. I've also enabled OAuth2 from GitHub. That didn't require a plugin. It just required kind of a weird set of steps that's mostly performed on GitHub itself, but wasn't too hard to do. You can also set up 2FA. Now, that's where it gets a little hinky, honestly. 2FA support is built right into Discourse. You don't have to enable anything or install anything for it. You can just, when you set up your user account, say, hey, I want to use 2FA, and you tell it what kind of authenticator you're using, whether it's a hardware key like a YubiKey, or whether it's software like Google Authenticator or Authy or whatever. 
and it just works. Everything's fine. What gets a little strange is once you enable OAuth 2 for your account, it turns off the 2FA. You can have one or the other. You can't actually have both. The other thing that I found kind of interesting and a little bit concerning for the future of just how various websites are doing OAuth 2 authentication, you can actually tie multiple OAuth 2 providers to your account there at Discourse. So, for example, right now, you could tie your login to both GitHub and to Patreon. Having done so, you could log in either with a local set of credentials that you created or with your Patreon or with GitHub, and you can do all three at once, which the more I thought about that, the more I was like, that's a little bit concerning because my initial impulse, once I had set up the GitHub authentication in response to a direct request from a user My first thought was, well, of course, I want to go ahead and tie my GitHub account to here. You know, it's just maximum discoverability. Uh, It makes it easier for people to discover my software projects if they start out at my profile here. But then I experimented with a little bit and I realized that I literally could log in with any three of those mechanisms, the local account, the Patreon account or the GitHub account. And I was like, what I'm really doing here is I'm making a lock that will accept just about any key you throw at it. And that seems like a bad move security-wise. So what are you settling on then? What I've settled on is is literally everything is still available. I need the Patreon integration, and I have at least one user who actually, not only a user, a direct supporter, who specifically wanted GitHub authentication. So I added that, and I don't have any problem with that. It's not specifically a problem or a thing that I've done differently right now. It just brought to my awareness a potential issue moving forward because we can't expect just every single person who might use OAuth 2 to immediately come to that conclusion that, hey, if I enable the OAuth 2 from a million different providers, there's a million different ways in here, and that's a bad thing. And when OAuth 2 was a little bit newer, most people really only had access to one, maybe two OAuth 2 providers, you know? Like, maybe you'd be at a site and it would take Microsoft OAuth 2 or or it would take Google OAuth 2 and that's about it. But, you know, now I look at, well, in theory, I could enable any OAuth 2 provider in Discourse. And if you do that, it's a guarantee. Somebody is going to tie every single thing there and you're going to end up with some person who has a way in from every single OAuth 2 provider and no idea that what they've done is just Swiss cheese their own security. Yeah, that's a good catch. That you're basically meaning that if somebody gets any one of these accounts, they get your Discourse account as well. Exactly. So I know it's a little early to be thinking about an exit strategy, but have you thought about that? Have you thought about what if Discourse doesn't work out? Like how portable is the database or the data in that database? Like, are you going to be able to move to a different platform without just completely starting again, like you've had to do in this case? That's going to depend on whether the other platform has an import mechanism from Discourse data. One of the things that I really liked about Discourse, it is absolutely designed for easy backup and restore and portability. I considered at least starting out with hosted Discourse, which I could have done for about the same amount of money I'm paying on the server bill, to be honest. And I considered it because it would have been, you know, an easy way to just go ahead and get started now and, you know, worry about the way I really wanted it later. I ended up not doing it that way because, again, I wanted to do it as right as I could from the start. And it just didn't seem that hard to go ahead and get it propped up the way I wanted to. And also for, you know, for our ZFS and our Proxmox users, and we, we got a, a 
fair chunk of the Proxmox community following us over as well. There's a real cachet to saying, hey, we put our money where our mouth is here. You know, all the things that I've been telling you for years are what you should be doing with ZFS underneath and a hypervisor on top and, you know, image-based backup using native replication. We're doing all that stuff. And like, that's powerful and that's cool and that's a draw. But the reason I could consider starting out with the hosted discourse is because Atwood and company, absolutely to their credit, they did design it to be portable. And they made a point of stating that, you know, this has been a big design goal and is a big design goal. And it is super easy for you either to take your self-hosted discourse installation and migrate it in to our hosted managed configuration or the other way around. Now, realistically, when you talk about leaving discourse for an entirely different platform, there was a time in my career when I'd have been like, you know what, if I need to take a month and figure out how to write, you know, my own SQL <laughs> parser to, you know, export an imp. I mean, I've done that at many points. I don't have the time or the inclination to do that now. So it's really going to boil down to we will not be migrating to another platform with any expectation of carrying over the data as is unless it actually has an import mechanism that works with discourse. But the other side of that is I just I don't foresee that being necessary anytime soon. Again, I specifically chose this platform because it's been around for a long time. It's free and open source software. It was co-founded by, I mean, frankly, an industry legend who, you know, I respect quite a bit. So we're in this for the long haul. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Looking to eat well this summer? HelloFresh's menu features calorie-smart and protein-smart lunch and dinner options, plus new vegan dinners to choose from. HelloFresh makes it easy to reach your food goals with flavorful recipes that leave you feeling satisfied. Did you know HelloFresh offers more than just delicious dinners? It's now easier than ever to skip that extra grocery store run by adding snacks, sides, and more to your weekly order. Simply shop HelloFresh Market and take your pick from a curated selection of over 100 items. Jim tried HelloFresh and was really impressed with the minimal recyclable packaging and said the pepita-crusted salmon meal was restaurant quality. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 25admins50 and use code 25admins50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com slash 25admins50 and code 25admins50 for 50% off plus free shipping. The EU Parliament recently voted on regulation that will hopefully mean that phones sold in the EU will have removable batteries. Now, this isn't law yet, and it has to go through various bureaucratic stages, but it's looking reasonably good. And the other catch is that what exactly is a removable battery? Does it mean you just use your fingernail and clip it out like an old school Nokia phone? Does it mean you can use reasonably common tools like a couple of screwdrivers? Does it mean the heat gun doesn't have to be too hot to melt the glue? There's a lot of questions here, and we don't know what those answers are going to be. Well, exactly. We're talking about a law, so the answer is whatever the courts and the legislators determine it's going to be. I will say that if there's a heat gun or, you know, desoldering iron involved, then if you're asking me, then no, that does not flip and count. It absolutely does not need to be fingernail openable. If it requires a, a flathead screwdriver or, or a Phillips head, then, I mean, that's perfectly fine. You know, the same kind of little jeweler's Phillips head you'd use to get into a laptop before they started making laptops even harder to get into. And I 
definitely sympathize with both sides on this one. Crafting the law such that you're not prescribing exactly how the battery has to be removal to that's going to you know lead to complications in a couple of years when somebody invents a better battery or something, but not leaving it so loose that they can find a way to weasel around the rules. And so the quote they have here is, portable batteries incorporated in appliances shall be readily removable and replaceable by the end user or by independent operators during the lifetime of the appliance. If the battery has a shorter lifetime than the appliance or at the latest at the end of the lifetime of the appliance. I don't know what's up with the last sentence of that, why they're differentiating whether the battery might not last as long as the device. Because I can see the phone manufacturer just trying to say, yeah, our phone's not meant to last any longer than the battery does. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, and they get into percentages, like after a certain number of cycles, it has to be 80% capacity and all that kind of stuff. It's very difficult to put those kind of numbers on things. As you say, battery technology might change and laws often get outdated quite quickly. Well, and I always wonder in those laws, where did that specific number come from? Whose number is like 5% higher than that? And whose competitors is 5% lower than that? Well, you know, when it comes to the whole carve out for, you know, if the device is intended to last longer than a battery or, you know, blah, blah, blah. That sounds to me like somebody's trying to carve out an exception for AirTags, basically, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because that is absolutely a device that should be required to have a replaceable battery. A lot of people buy into AirTags, not realizing that every AirTag you buy is designed to be thrown in the trash in six months and you have to buy another one. Yeah, and that's a whole separate argument about just the level of e-waste. How much stuff wouldn't be e-waste if the battery was replaceable? Well, is that the whole point of the law? <laughs> uh, no, I think the whole point of this law is just stop getting screwed by phone companies. I mean, it's all one contiguous spectrum of yeah. getting screwed over, you know, whether you're talking about the literal land getting screwed over with a bunch of toxic stuff dumped into landfills, or whether you're talking about consumers directly getting screwed over in the pocketbook with having to buy new things, in both cases, it ultimately ends up being something that costs the consumer, whether it costs them because their tax money has to go to dealing with all this toxic waste that's being created. That comes directly out of their pocket. <laughs> You've got to pay taxes, right? And if the government's taking care of the environment, how else is it doing it? So no matter how you try to parse that, it still comes down to protecting, let's just go with the citizens instead of consumers. It, it, it comes down to a regulatory body trying to protect its citizens from avarice and large corporations. Yeah, and, you know, there's still some concerns about some of the other language. They, you know, their definition of readily replaceable is after removing a battery, you can substitute a similar battery without affecting the functioning or the performance of the appliance, which isn't to say that it has to go back together nicely, <laughs> which leads to the whole questions about glue and heat guns and so on. Well, yeah, and waterproofness. Like, if you have to crack it open and break seals that won't seal properly again, and it's not as waterproof, it's not the same IP rating, does that count as functioning? Arguably, yes, but functioning to the same degree? I would like to point out that many years ago, Samsung made IP67 phones with replaceable batteries. That is not a barrier. It doesn't need to be, but it can be. It is not a barrier. You can call it a barrier, but you can call anything a barrier. You can say, I can't do that because my girlfriend's hair is purple. It doesn't mean that's relevant. It doesn't mean that that is actually a real barrier. It means you decided not to do a thing because you didn't want to. Yeah, and like they were saying, some manufacturers are already looking at a certain exemption for wet conditions, like Joe was saying, but waterproofing, to try to opt out of having to have electric toothbrushes have replaceable batteries. Yeah, 
Probably no, that they shouldn't be that easy to skirt around these rules. Well, it reminds me of the USB-C thing. I remember that must have been about a year ago Mm -hmm. when a a similar situation happened where the EU said that all smartphones had to be rechargeable via USB-C. And everyone said, ah, right, this is finally the end of the lightning connector with iPhones. But when you actually dig into the proposed legislation, it only applies to devices that are charged via wired charging. And Apple are moving very slowly but surely towards wireless-only charging. And so they'll just get out of it that way. Instead of a USB-C port or a lightning port, there'll just be no port. And then you just have to use a wireless charger, which itself will probably be charged by USB-C or powered by USB-C. And so it makes me wonder what other loopholes there are that the likes of Apple and maybe Samsung will be able to get around here. Well, the thing is, there are always loopholes to be gotten around, and predatory corporations will always eventually find them and exploit them, and then you draft new legislation. Now, the thing about that is, the new legislation you draft, you'll close the loopholes they're using. You have to leave other loopholes because you can't tighten everything all the way down. Machines have to have moving parts. So you can never just be like, okay, well, that's it. We're done. We've got the laws that we need and they'll serve us from now until the end of the time and we're good to go. No, it's law is essentially, I was about to say it's like software, but essentially law is software. It's the software that our court system runs on, uh, whichever court system you happen to be a part of. And like any other kind of software, it is not a static, you know, you did it once and it's good forever kind of a thing. It requires maintenance. Yeah, and you know, we definitely see don't want to be limiting innovation and so on. Like if we had made a rule that micro USB was the connector for everything and it meant we never got faster USB, that would be bad. Now that's an absurd argument, but having to write the laws in a way where they're not going to get in the way in the future when you don't know what the future is, is is a big challenge. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Matthew writes, I have a Windows 11 desktop with several terabytes of data that I want to back up. I also have an older desktop with several hard disks and Ubuntu installed on it. Currently, I have an LVM volume on the Ubuntu server that I use to back up my Windows box via rsync through WSL. After listening to your show, I would like to set up ZFS on my Linux server and use that to back up the data from my Windows box, but I'm not sure how to go about it. I appreciate any guidance you can provide. From a basic point of view, it'd be almost the same. Instead of the LVM volume, you'd set up ZFS and make a pool and then maybe make a data set, and that's where you'd run rsync to. Just remember that using rsync isn't necessarily creating a very good backup of your Windows machine. It's backing up basically each file individually and not really atomically. So if a file's changing while rsync's backing it up, you're either going to get an error or it's going to back up an inconsistent copy of the file where, you know, the first half of the file is from before you change the file and the second half is after you change the file and things, you know, it's not going to restore nicely. Yeah, but if it's three o'clock in the morning on one client Windows device, you know. Yes, and so... If the rsync backup to LVM was good enough, then the rsync backup to ZFS will be at least that good, if not better. But you might want to look at even more in the future. But as a starting point, 
just running the rsync to a mount point that's a ZFS dataset instead is all you need to do. So it won't actually be a lot to do. Right. But so basically, if you're replacing LVM with ZFS, your backups are going to work the same way they always did. The only real difference is once the backups arrive on your backup system, they are absolutely kept safer than they would be on Linux LVM. You can also keep a much greater history of snapshots, which you may find useful, even with rsync, than you could get away with on LVM. But it's unclear from the way you phrased your question whether that's all you're looking for or whether you want you know, the full money that Alan and I always talk about with actual ZFS replication in the whole nine. And the answer for that, unfortunately, really amounts to you, you can't do that if the data is starting out on the Windows box to begin with. Ideally, what you would want to do in that case is you would want to move to keeping your data on a NAS that you access from the Windows box, and you can back up that NAS you know, with ZFS replication like we always talk about with all of the great features and everything you could possibly want. If you want Windows to store your data directly on ZFS and you don't want to do a traditional NAS, if you want to get fancy with it, you could set up a ZVOL and you could set that up as an iSCSI target and you can actually give Windows that iSCSI target as Windows sees it as a bare metal drive that you can format with NTFS from Windows. And Windows can use in exactly the same way that it would if that were a real physical drive sitting inside the box. But without hearing a little bit more about what exactly you're looking for out of the setup, it's hard to give you more detailed, direct advice. Now, if all you wanted was what Alan said, and really you just want to swap out LVM with ZFS and not touch anything else, well, you don't really even need to look up a guide for that. Apt install ZFS utils Linux, hit enter. You will install ZFS support on your Ubuntu box. And then you just need to have drives available for it. And, uh, you know, ZPool create with the appropriate flags. I will mention... You don't want to use bare device names. You want to use the dev disk by ID directory to populate your pool when you use your zpool create command. It'll make it much easier to identify your disks later. And also, do yourself a favor. Make sure whatever type of case you're using in the box where these drives are, put a label where you can see it immediately that says which drive is which using the last four of the WWN or the serial number of the drive that you're also using in the dev disk by ID directory when you create the pool. So that way, when eventually you have a drive fail, instead of, well, I had a drive fail and now I'm going to do this horrible sweaty thing of powering down my box and Easter egging it until I figure out which drive it was that went bad, then ZPool status just tells you, oh, the disk with the WWN that ended in you know, Alpha Charlie 3.8 is the one that failed. And you look at your computer and right there where you can see it without having to unplug cables or start pulling drives to look at labels, you've got something that says, this is the drive that ends in Alpha Charlie 3.8. So that makes it much easier and much less sweaty and horrible when you have to replace a drive, which let's face it, eventually you will. Drives fail. Yeah, like I literally label the drive with its serial number in the hot swap tray before I first install it in the machine. The serial number of the drive is written on the like manufacturer's label for the drive. I use my label maker and label the front of that drive with that before I first plug it in. And I actually use dev disk GPT label or the equivalent on FreeBSD to label the drives with the label I assigned each disk based on literally what the label on the front of the machine says. So I know which one's which for sure and that they will stay with the right mapping. 
Now, with that said, you may not have like, you know, a, a proper storage server chassis with hot swap bays like Alan and I do. However, even with just like an old generic desktop case that you've got, you know, like a cage in or multiple bays in internally that you put drives in, what you want to do in that case is when you open up the panel on the case and you see all those drives in there, you just want to make sure that label is somewhere visible right there. You don't need to do anything else but pull the side panel off of that case and then you can see those labels that tell you which drive is which so you can immediately and confidently know that's the drive that I need to unplug the cables from, pull, replace, plug the same cables back in, and then go from there. Now, obviously, once you've replaced it with the new drive, update your label to match the serial or WWN on the new replacement drive. Yeah, or you'll be very confused. Also, a lot of folks don't realize this, but the vast majority of old desktop computers you've got lying around, they actually support SATA hot swapping. Just because there's not an easy cart sitting on the front where you don't have to pull the box open does not mean you actually have to power the box down to pull and replace drives as long as, you know, not your boot drive or whatever. I have built lots of tower machines where, again, literally, it's just labels on the side of the drive cage on the inside of the machine. But when it went down, I could keep running and just pull the side panel. Everything is still up and running. Pull the drive that I need to pull because I can see which one it is. Plug in the new one, plug in the cables, and boom, ready to go. Now, in some consumer hardware, you may find that there's a feature on the motherboard that you have to turn on in BIOS to allow SATA hot plug that's off by default. So if it seems like that's not working for you, look for that feature in BIOS and enable it if it's not already. Generally, especially if you're following Jim's idea of just doing like the last four or six digits of the WWN, that's short enough that the label will fit on the back of the hard drive with the connectors. And in most desktops, that's the side that's facing out. And so if you put the label on the physical hard drive, it means A, you can label the drive, the replacement drive before you put it in the case where there's a lot less room for your hands to move around and that the right label is attached to the drive. So it's never going to be mislabeled. For some reason, Alan, I'm picturing you walking around your house just labeling stuff with that labeling machine. Yeah. Only objections from my partner prevented each cupboard in our kitchen from having a bunch of labels telling you what's in that cupboard without having to open it. <laughs> I imagine those objections were rather strenuous. <laughs> Enough that there aren't labels on our cupboards, if that's what you mean. <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.